0: Good evening. Welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, December 24th, 2020. I'm so grateful to you for joining tonight. What an amazing opportunity for us to be together, to study together and to inspire each other together, to be connected. Thank you very much. Tonight is the 10th day of the Jewish month of Teves. Tomorrow is a fast day, Asara Beves, the tenth day of Teves. The fast starts tomorrow morning at 6:09 a.m. Here at Adath, Arminian begins at the regular time of 6:45 a.m. Mincha tomorrow afternoon it is a special earlier time at 3:45 p.m. And the fast ends when we make Kiddush on Shabbos tomorrow night, Friday night. It may seem ironic that most of the world is celebrating and we are fasting. But I think it is helpful from time to time to be just a bit out of sync with the rest of the world. It's not such a bad thing. We have this fast day for several reasons, several events that occurred on or near this date. Allow me to focus on just two elements of this fast day, which is probably the least known on our calendar. So the first Besameikdash, the first holy temple in Jerusalem, was destroyed by Bavel, the Babylonians on Tishbe of the ninth day of Av, in the summer, about 2,500 years ago. Three weeks earlier, the 17th day of Tammuz, the walls of Jerusalem were pierced, and that began three weeks of hand-to-hand combat until Jerusalem was destroyed. After the destruction, the Babylonians installed a Jewish governor to oversee the remnant of Jews still in Israel. Less than eight weeks later, that governor, Gedaliah, was assassinated by other Jews, and the remaining Jews were exiled. Those three events occurred in the span of less than three months. Asar B'teves, the tenth of Teves that we commemorate tomorrow, occurred earlier, two and a half years before those events, when the Babylonians laid a siege around Jerusalem that eventually, two and a half years later, led to its destruction. So, we have four fast days surrounding this major event of Hurban, destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. We have Tisha B'Av, the actual destruction itself, which is, of course, the most serious. And we observe that today annually on the 9th of Av with a 25-hour fast. And then the other three, Asara B'teves, which is tomorrow, 17th of Tammuz, the third of Tishrei, the day after Rosh Hashanah, those three fasts are dawn till nightfall. Rav Aaron Lichtenstein points out a curious distinction between tomorrow's fast, 10th of Teves, and the other three fasts that all relate to the same major catastrophic event, the destruction of the temple. And that distinction is, on the other three days, something momentous happened that day. The walls of Jerusalem were pierced, the Beis Hamikdash was destroyed, a Jewish leader was assassinated. But all that happened on this day, the 10th of Teves, is the king of Babylonia laid siege around Jerusalem. And by the way, it wasn't the first time. And there was no immediate consequence. Life continued in a normal fashion for over two years. Rav Lichtenstein writes, The road leading from this event, tomorrow's event, to the actual destruction was a long, road. Why do we mark the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem and not just the breaching of the walls or the destruction of the temple? The message of this commemoration is that after the destruction, we must trace its sources and mark its stages. We must look backwards to events that were not earth-shattering when they initially happened and perceive how the seeds of destruction on the 9th of Av were planted two and a half years earlier, on the 10th of Tevez. The more we study history, the more we learn that we should not concentrate only on the final act, the cataclysmic event itself, but also on all the stages that led up to it. Rav Lichtenstein continues, the moral message that arises from this is the importance of sharpening our consciousness, of the unfolding of the past, seeing how the branches sprout forth from the roots. And that's important for two reasons. The first reason is that remembrance of the past, the good and the bad, is part of our existence. It's part of our essence. There is a value to connecting to the past. But much more than that, and the Rambam explains this explicitly, the fast days exist also in order to open the door towards the future. Lessons from the past should inform and hopefully illuminate our way into the future. Rav Lichtenstein concludes, this is the point that is unique to the 10th of Teves, tomorrow's fast day. Specifically that which does not seem so terrible. That which we can live with. That is what requires rectification on the 10th of Teves. The obligation of repentance and introspection that goes along with the fast day involves seeing prospectively that which may usually be seen only in retrospect. So that's an important, unique lesson that comes from this fast day from Avaron Lichtenstein. There's a second feature of this fast day that is unique and it comes into view this year And that is, in our calendar, this is the only fast day that can possibly fall on a Friday, as it does this year. Which is strange, because there's a general prohibition against fasting on Shabbos. Now, the fast tomorrow, I mentioned earlier, doesn't end until we make Kiddush on Friday night. So we are actually fasting during the first part of Shabbos from the moment Shabbos enters until we recite the Kiddush. I understand practically for us, it's not such a terrible problem. The day is short. Even those who attend the Minyan at Adath will be home from Shul by about six o'clock. It's still shorter than any other fast day. But still, even if it's just for a short time, how can it be that our calendar causes us to fast on Shabbos? So there is a simple, technical answer to that question. Leave that for another time. I want to share with you an answer that's given by the Chassam Sofer. It is a powerful and deep answer. All of the fasts concerning the destruction of the Temple are for what happened on that date in the past. Piercing of the walls, destruction of the base Hamigdash, assassination. Only the tenth of Teves, tomorrow, is for the future. It's a fast day about what will happen In the future. Listen to what the Zohar says. The Zohar, the classic source of Kabbalah Jewish mysticism, the Zohar says that every year on the 10th of Teves God decrees if this coming Tisha B'Av this summer will be a fast day, as it has been for 2,000 years? Or will it finally be a holiday with the restoration of the base HaMikdash and the rebuilding of Jerusalem? Now Jewish law says that we're not allowed to fast on Shabbos concerning a sorrow that's in the past. Because on Shabbos we should not be mourning, we should not be sad. However, Jewish law does say that we are allowed to fast on Shabbos if it potentially serves a constructive purpose for the future. I'll give you a simple example. If a person doesn't feel well, let's say a person has a stomach ache, and by not eating on Shabbos they will feel better, then a person is allowed to fast on Shabbos if they're sick and they'll feel better by not eating. Fasting on this Shabbos is to hopefully make us feel better with the rebuilding of Jerusalem in the near future, and that's the reason, according to the Chassam Sofer, why fasting in the first part of this Shabbos is not a contradiction to the general rule of observing and celebrating Shabbos. Let's turn to this week's Parsha. This week's Parsha is Vayigash. There's a famous and difficult question in these several portions. Once Yosef is brought out of prison and made the second most powerful person in Egypt, Why doesn't he contact his father, Yaakov? He didn't know what his brothers told Yaakov about what had happened to him. Certainly, they didn't tell him the truth. He didn't know, which we know by reading the Parsha, that they actually told their father that Yosef had been killed. Yosef didn't know that's what they told him. As the favorite son, didn't he realize what his continued silence and absence must be doing to his father, the continued pain and suffering that his father must be undergoing? So initially, in the years that he was a slave and then as a prisoner, perhaps he was unable to reach out and contact his father, but once he was free and powerful. How could he not contact his father, Yaakov? There are many answers to this question. Permit me to share with you an answer given by Rabbi Yoel bin Nun. And I share it because this is an answer that has particular relevance for us today. Yosef is sold by his brothers into slavery. He becomes a slave in Egypt. And then he's falsely accused of a crime and he becomes a prisoner. For years, Yosef sits alone. No friends, no family. His mind endlessly rehashing what happened, what brought him to this state. Alone. In the dark, suffering, our anxiety overwhelms us and we start to question and fear everything. Why hasn't Yaakov come looking for me? Yosef must have thought to himself. Why did Yaakov send me? All those years ago, when I was only 17 years old, why did Yaakov send me alone to go find my brothers shepherding their flocks? Didn't Yaakov realize how jealous of me they were? Didn't he realize how much they hated me? Or perhaps, Yosef speculated, Yaakov did know. Perhaps Yaakov was part of the plot. Perhaps his brothers had convinced Yaakov that Yosef was too arrogant, too spoiled, and the family would be better off without him. Yosef did not contact Yaakov because he feared Yaakov wanted him dead, or at least gone. Now we know that that is not only false but preposterous. But that's what happens with fear and anxiety and loneliness in the dark. We imagine the unimaginable. And this fear, this anxiety, these questions ate away at Yosef even when he was free, even when he had married and he and his wife had given birth to a son. Listen to what the Torah says, Vayikra Yosef eshem Habakar. Yosef named his firstborn son Menashe. Why Menashe? What does that mean? The Torah says, Ki nashani Elohim eskol amali the ace base avi. God helped me forget. Menashe from Nashani to forget. God helped me forget all my suffering and helped me forget my father's house. Because it was too painful to remember what he thought his brothers and especially his father had done to him. And even when the brothers appear searching for food and he recognizes them, though they they don't recognize him, he expresses no mercy, no compassion, though they and their families at home, and especially his father, are starving, he treats them harshly, with a bitterness Built up over more than twenty years of festering suspicion and hatred until in our parsha. Yehuda standing with the youngest brother Binyamin, Yosef's only full brother, Yehuda. Who had been largely responsible for Yosef being sold into slavery? Yehuda says these words to the man he knows as, par- as second in command to Paro. Vayomer Our father said to us, You know, my wife bore me two sons. One was taken from me, killed. I will live the rest of my life in agony. At that moment, Yosef realizes two things. Number one, Yehuda and the other brothers were willing to sacrifice themselves to protect their youngest brother, his brother, Binyamin, which is a complete transformation from how they treated him. And number two, his father had never abandoned him, certainly never caused or even wished him harm, but suffered as Yosef suffered every minute they were apart. And that's the moment when Yosef finally says to them, Ani Yosef, I am Joseph, your brother. Ha'od Avichai, is my father still alive? But Yosef could not have done it even a moment sooner. Thank God, I have never experienced anything remotely comparable to this. And even now, I am blessed that I am not alone, that I am well, Baruch Hashem, thank God. But when I'm up in the middle of the night by myself, sometimes I can't stop my mind from running to the most horrible scenarios which in the daytime, I know, are unreal. But at night, alone, we can imagine the worst. And then I think to myself, what might it be like for someone who is alone, especially now? Someone who is sick someone who is insecure about their food or shelter. So many of us, so many of those around us are truly suffering no less than what Yosef suffered all of those dark years. Dr. Dhruv Kular wrote a prescient article in the New York Times in 2016, titled, How Social Isolation Is Killing Us. And he writes, The only thing worse than suffering a serious illness is suffering it alone. One recent study found that isolation increases the risk of heart disease by 29% and stroke by 32%. Loneliness can accelerate cognitive decline in older adults. And isolated individuals are twice as likely to die prematurely as those with more robust social interactions. We see this today all around us. And the emotional effects can be as devastating as they were for Yosef. But here's the amazing thing. I can't cure COVID. But I and you can help someone else feel they are not alone. And it's so easy. It's a phone call or a text or a FaceTime chat. We have a group doing this at a DAF, making calls, checking in with people, offering to do errands or any other help that we can safely offer. Some people we call don't want to talk. Some tell us they don't need anything. Some people do want to talk or help in other ways. Others appreciate just that someone cares. I am convinced this effort will help people get through this period as much as anything else that we are doing. Try it yourself. Set aside 10 minutes a day to reach out to someone outside your circle of family and friends. You can save someone And you will save yourself. So, how does Yosef heal himself? Yes, he reunites with his brothers and his father in our Parsha, but how does he recover from the trauma that lasted over 20 years? So, there are two powerful practical strategies, Yosef practices in our Parsha, each of these strategies is helpful on its own and the two of them complement each other and boost each other's effectiveness. And both of them are available to help us through the traumas we face. The first is described by Rav Melech Biderman. In our Parsha, we have the dramatic scene where Yosef and his father Yaakov are finally reunited. Vayera elov, and Yosef presented himself before his father Yaakov. Vayipol al Yosef leaned his head on his father's neck, on his father's shoulder, Vayefk al of od, and Yosef cried and cried. Vayomer Yisrael el-Yosef, and Yaakov said to his son Yosef, Amusa hapam now I can die a satisfied man. Now that I have seen your face again, now that I know that you are alive, my life is complete. What a beautiful, emotional scene. But think about this for a moment. What is not in that scene? Notice, there are no questions in that scene. Yaakov meets Yosef after 22 years of mourning, of worrying, of not knowing what happened. The Ramban Nachmanides says that Yaakov never found out what the brothers actually did to Yosef. Notice, Yaakov does not ask Yosef, what happened? Where were you? How did you end up here? And this is a deep lesson that is taught to us by both Yaakov and Yosef. They did not dwell on the past. They let it go. Their only concern was mikan v'elech, going forward. Whatever happened in the past is irrelevant. They both understood that they each needed to be a new person. Now, of course, to move forward sometimes you have to look back. There has to be repentance. There has to be forgiveness requested and forgiveness granted. There are lessons to learn from what happened to use in the future. Yes, that is all constructive. And the brothers apologized to Yosef. But once you've done that, especially when it's painful, once you have done whatever is constructive to do concerning the past, then it's time to move forward. Don't bring it up again. It serves no helpful purpose. To let go and to move on is one of the most difficult accomplishments and one of the most helpful. Not to be mired and stuck in hate and guilt and shame and anger. Yosef didn't tell Ya'akov what happened because the brothers sincerely repented and he forgave them. Telling Ya'akov at this point would be lashon hara, negative speech that serves no constructive purpose. Ya'akov didn't ask Yosef because it didn't matter. The only thing that mattered now was moving forward, letting go, being a new person, unburdened by the pain and hurt of the past, free to enter into this new chapter of his life. That is what Yaakov and Yosef teach us in our Parsha about how to achieve resolution, After a crisis. That's the first strategy. It's hard to do, yes, but it is powerful and it is transformative. The second strategy is described by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, a blessed memory. We know Yosef suffered terribly at the hands of his brothers. He says it himself when he is in prison at the end of Parshas Vayeshev a couple of weeks ago. He says to his fellow prisoner, Ki gunov gunavti mereto ivrim, I was kidnapped from my home v'gampo asisi mu'uma. Even here, I didn't do anything wrong. Ki samu osi babar, I was placed in prison unjustly. I am the victim of kidnapping and injustice. But when the moment of reconciliation and resolution finally arrive in our parsha, what Yosef says is remarkable. Because what he says, which I'll share in a moment, we know, in quotation marks, to be untrue. But Yosef knows, in quotation mark knows it differently. Here's what Yosef says in our Parsha. As soon as he reveals himself to his brothers, he says, V'ata'alte'atzvu, and now, Don't worry or feel guilty because you sold me. The reason I'm here is because God sent me here in order to save your lives. There's a famine and it's supposed to go on for another five years, right? This was after the first two years of the famine. It's supposed to last another five years, total of seven years of famine. And there'll be no food anywhere. God sent me here to ensure that you will be able to survive and to keep you alive. So you didn't do anything. It's not you who sent me here. It's God who sent me here. God made me second in command to Paro. You had nothing to do with it. It was all God's plan. remarkable. What Yosef knows is what we have learned in modern times, three truths of psychology. Number one, there is always more than one possible interpretation of what happens to us. Number two, we can choose between different interpretations. And number three, the way we think shapes the way we feel. Yosef understood the concept of reframing. That means seeing the negative events in his life in a new way thereby liberating himself from depression and learned helplessness. Yosef is reframing events so that his brothers will not bear the unbearable burden of guilt for having sold Yosef. But, he is only able to do that because he's already done it for himself. Rabbi Sachs writes at the heart of Judaism is the idea of human freedom. We are not prisoners of events, but active shapers of them. Yosef's life shows that we can defeat tragedy by our ability to see our life not just as a sequence of unfair events inflicted on us by others, but also as a series of divinely intended moves, each of which brings us closer to a situation in which we can do what God wants us to do. We may not, all of us, be able to be Yosef, but we can learn from Yosef what it is to change the way we feel by changing the way we think. And the best way to do that is to ask, what does this bad experience enable me to do that I could not have done otherwise? That, says Rabbi Sachs, can be life-transforming. So, I will share with you I try to practice this. I often fail. I often wallow in misery. But when I succeed, in the moments where I can see the strengths I have learned this year, the tools I have acquired, the blessings I have that I try not to take for granted, I don't only feel better. I feel more powerful. I feel more in control of my life. I have a lot of room for improvement. But Yosef teaches it can be accomplished with trauma that is objectively a lot worse. Yosef in our parsha can lead us through COVID to emerge stronger on the other side if we learn from his example. My friends, I wish you a wonderful evening, an easy fast tomorrow, and a beautiful Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.